0: Welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is architect Barbara Besto. I was thrilled to get to meet her. If you live in LA, you have probably been in one of Barbara's exquisitely designed buildings. She is an architect based here and the principal of Besto Architecture. And her spaces include uh, Intelligentsia Cafe in Silver Lake. Uh, the Claire V store in Silver Lake. Beats by Dre, the headquarters for that. Pitfire Pizza in Culver City, which my children have undoubtedly desecrated on more than one occasion. The beautifully redesigned Beechwood Cafe in Beechwood Canyon under the Hollywood sign. Uh, these are all spaces that if you live in LA, you've probably been in and probably noticed the colourful, bright use of space and light and geometry and just splashes of beautiful colour Barbara was kind enough to give me an hour of her time at her glorious offices in Silver Lake so I hope you look forward to the interview I loved hearing her talk about architecture and how literature has influenced her as an architect it was a really interesting point of view and not one I'd ever considered and I hope it's as illuminating for you as it was for me Barbara, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast. I really am. It was so fun when um, our mutual friend Nancy, who was also going to be a guest, I think I interview her next week, when she came back from having met you and couldn't wait to get in touch with me, saying, I've met met your new guest, I've met your new guest. So I'm just thrilled and delighted. I'm such a huge fan of your work. So it's really, really exciting to see you and know you and get your books and things. So thank you for doing it.
1: It. Oh thank you so much. I'm I'm extremely happy to be here. I think this is the first podcast I may have ever done. So
0: Is it oh good. I kind of saw you thrill. done some stuff for KCRW and things. You done oh, some radio true, interviews, yeah, but yeah, not yeah. podcasts. I don't think so. Yeah.
1: Certainly not about like interesting things like books. Are so. you um have you always been a reader? Yeah, I think I remember reading things like I like to read series. I remember in third grade getting into the Wizard of Oz books, of which there are perhaps forty, mm-hmm. you know, and they're kind of written from the I don't know the twenties and thirties or something. But are they
0: it was really very, that many? I had whole no idea.
1: Yeah, strange universe and and I'm probably questionable given today's politics and things. But at the, as a at kid, the time. sort of like this fun. I, mean, I had a turtle that I named Ozma because Ozma is sort of a main character. Anyhow, but I liked. I I, yeah, I was always reading a lot, and that was sort of it's still probably what i it's probably my self care is like having mm-hmm. time to read mm-hmm. and if i'm on vacation most of that is spent like reading by the beach or something
0: mm-hmm. do you make time for it when you work i mean you're um, working all the time it. but
1: oh uh, I, I guess i only i guess i am not i don't make time for reading really during the day i kind of read articles in the morning and then i read books at night usually mm-hmm. so I, like, I think I'm one of those horrible Facebook posters who's posting all kinds of articles that aren't necessarily political <laughs> and more esoteric and nobody really likes
0: them. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> I think that's okay. I was That's interesting that you talk about reading as self-care. I was I did an interview earlier this week and we were talking about exactly this and I was saying at the risk of my repeating myself on the podcast that I've taken myself off Instagram and Twitter so that was my New Year's resolution just to see what it did to my nervous system as much mm. as anything else and I have found that it has has exponentially increased my ability to concentrate. Mm. But it has—it's it's radical and an immediate the shift. And as someone who has read consistently throughout my life, I didn't realize how impacted it had been. I just noticed and thought that it was a combination of having two young children. And being a mother, and you know, working, and all the rest of it. But I, 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 I think I realised that it was um, that there was a correlation between social media and and an ability to really digest and hold and stay for what a novel asks of you, um, and that that felt like self-care. But you you draw that you draw that line so immediately, and I, I don't think I had until till lately that it was really important for the good of one's soul <laughs> to. Um, to immerse in that way i think yeah.
1: well I, I remember i used to spend years at the shrink saying i wanted to lead a more contemplative life because i tend to lead a very busy life mm-hmm. but i guess i've realized that like it's unlikely i'll kind of go off and do a one week you know <laughs> silent retreat, silent retreat. <laughs> but, the, but 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 in the way reading is kind of you know something that I, I just find it very not soothing in like a opioid kind of way but mm-hmm. it, but it's sort of a um yeah, I think that, as you say the immersion I think is really good in, yeah. in the story. And I have that horrible thing sometimes where I read a book that isn't very good and I don't I find it hard to just throw something out the window and so it's just like this torture. I'm always complaining to my husband, like, oh god, this
0: book's terrible. And, and you make yourself but finish
1: I, it. I just I just kinda need to know what happened you know, whatever. It's terrible. But then, but then I but then I feel I'm like, Do I how how badly can I say this book is on Goodreads or something like that? Not that I really even do that, but but it's kinda of funny. But I but so I'm wary of, you know, I don't just read any old thing. Right, right. I don't want to get stuck with this.
0: Yeah. Who do you take a rec- who do you take a recommendation from? Do you use Goodreads or do you use friends or No, I think
1: friends um, usually sometimes we actually probably the book review, like the I read the New York Times book review and the do You do? The New York review of books a lot. Yeah. And then sometimes The Guardian, you know, like that's more like from, and then social media sometimes, Mm -hmm. like on Facebook, some friends of mine will post books that they like. Mm -hmm. I have a client who we trade book recommendations Mm -hmm. back and forth. Yeah. It's a little haphazard, but I do find it's like mining, right? Once you find an author that you like and hopefully they have a nice, you know body of work and then you're good for like you know two months just going through
0: I that agree. You know? yeah. I agree I, yeah I never used to be that I used to be much more esoteric and much more I read one great novel by someone and then that would that would be fine I'd, I'd move on but I find as I've got older I want to I want to know everything they. Like I want to dig out their last short story just in case it's you know right. some gem that I've missed right did you come from a bookish family were you readers all of you yeah I think well every
1: every, every academic family so is a professor mm-hmm professor parents and
0: professors of what?
1: Anthropology my father was an anthropologist and my mom was, was language although she ended up being more an administrator in the long run mm-hmm. she's from Germany she still does read a fair amount actually she runs a, a booker <laughs> prize book club I think. oh really? She still goes to and she's always giving me the cast offs you know. That's um, fun and then my dad is I guess he was bookish but um, I don't know that he would have been a big fiction reader but although I guess that's where like one of the books on my things came from that, that which one is which one is his PG Woodhouse well PG Woodhouse is like the entire my dad's entire branch of the family was like PG Woodhouse-ish
0: oh really that was
1: the, that was the bester um, lingua franca frankly and so I had a, and I myself had a PG Woodhouse lending library that I created and Sixth grade, I think. No seventh way. Seventh grade, where I, so I would lend out PG Woodhouse to members of my family. I had made little library cards for it. Someone, I think maybe my grandfather had deeded me his collection of mm-hmm. art Of the
0: whole life. lot.
1: Oh, well, a whole bunch that he had, yeah, or maybe really? duplicates or something. So I kind of lined them up on a shelf and had my little P.G. Woodhouse.
0: That's adorable, P.G. Woodhouse. So the the book you picked was Code of the Worcesters, um, which was published in 1938, which is the third novel of the mm-hmm. of the series. Um, I had not known that this man wrote Woodhouse wrote 35 stories and 10 novels with Bertie and Jeeves, in, which is just. Staggering amount of output to me. Why do you think Woodhouse was the lingua franca of your family? What what chimed with them?
1: What about? It's hilarious. I mean, it's it's kind of prose. The prose is hilarious, and it's also it's it's escapist in that things kind of operate in this parallel universe of like lighthearted. You know, I guess out of nobility, or it's kind of it's like it's pre-war England. Mm But it's a, uh, you know, it's a land of, like, lords and, and showgirls and people stealing each other's, like, silver, you know, cow creamer because so-and-so collects the cow creamers. And, you know, it's just there's always, like, a kind of MacGuffin that is that is the plot line. Uh-huh. But a lot of it's an excuse to just be hilariously droll about things. And so so it just, it's just it's very charming and it's very enveloping in a way because it's this sort of whole, you know, lovely world. And I think for me as a kid it was... I had like a more complicated childhood and in a way I think I was like I just wanna live in like a patient right. when Especially at that age, I was like, I'm just I'm just gonna read this all the time. I think I was living in rural Michigan for a year and I was like, Get me out of here mm-hmm. So the book was like a really good kind of escape.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um Do you have siblings? I have a sister, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Did she read them? She
1: did. She did. I don't know if she went quite as far down the deep end. But it's one of those, it's kind of like Tom Lehrer, later, like the guy who made these this records in the 60s that are kind of like comic piano music that's sort of political but like wordy. Like there's a whole kind of dorky academic humor thing that, that that's kind of part of, you know. Mm-hmm. The, um, I remember that Andrew Cookburn, the super leftist marxist critic from the nation like a british guy but he he wrote like a whole sort of uh y thing for pg woodhouse about how great it was and this is a you know stories are just about like nobility and like upper classes and stuff and it was you know it's kind of i think a lot of people really responded to that and the-
0: yeah i know I, I think he's i i was just reading a uh a- I mean, I've read Woodhouse, and, and he was someone that my grandfather passionately loved. So I relate to it being something that um, gets handed down through yeah. the family, and that becomes a currency that you can use to sort of. My grandpa loved um, Woodhouse, and also um, Arthur Conan Doyle. So oh, I yeah. read that Sherlock Holmes was it was an easy way to to cross the bridge to talk to grandpa actually, and to have something sort of in common. Um, and I was I was just struck by it. it's the first Woodhouse I've had. I think he's the first time he's cropped up on the list, oh, okay. and uh, an interesting, that, you know, as as an American, that you would pick such an English and such a so tied to such a specific period, uh, an author. Right. And I think he does get a raw deal as being just this sort of humorist, and that there is something. Um, Particularly in the, I didn't know about Code of the Worcester, so I was I was reading about it. And oh
1: yeah, that's like one. I think that's one of the best. But they're all, but they're all kind of great. I mean, but a lot of it's written in America. I mean, he moved to America and it went yeah. early, mm. so he's writing all this stuff kind of in I I don't know if it was nostalgia It was just like his world, and you know, this is a way of using this kind of like language that he liked to use, which is. I mean, you, if you look at a given line, I wish I had. Brought one with me, but they're just hysterical. Like the radio is just hysterical.
0: I had, I b- pulled out a line that made me laugh. Um, well, this actually goes back to the the point you were making, which is that he's he's a political commentator in his brilliant and and funny way. And there's the, this character, um, the would be fascist dictator, Roderick Spoke. Oh, yes, from, yes, oh, yes. Even and Roderick the, <laughs> exactly. And, and who's loosely based on. Um, Oswald Mosley, who was the fascist at the time, and I love the detail that Spode's followers have are called the black shorts because they've run out of <laughs> colours for the shirts, so they've had to go to the, they've had to go to shorts. You anyway, know, but Spode is described as appearing as if nature had intended to make a gorilla and changed its mind at the last moment, which is. Just fucking brilliant, it really is. It doesn't get better than that. Um, But I was reading a lovely piece in The New Yorker about Woodhouse, and uh, I forget who wrote it, and he drew this lovely analogy, I thought, between saying that that Jeeves and Worcester in that relationship is not dissimilar to Peter Pan and Wendy, that Jeeves is a kind of Wendy, mother, nanny, surrogate, and that um, Bertie is this eternal lost boy who can't grow up and who can't do anything without his sort of attendant in that way and and that I just thought that was such a it was a tiny comment in it but I just was so struck by it I thought it was such a lovely analogy and not and such a gentle way of looking at at this quite hearty brisk duo that the two of them are there yeah. was something really insightful about seeing them as a lost boy and a Wendy yeah. taking care well, of I like each that. other I, yeah I mean I guess if
1: you yeah or like a kind of you know one of these weird buddy pictures with like Eddie Murphy and some other, you know, like yeah, oh, a sidekick, yeah. Like, you one without the other would not, be
0: yeah, that. yeah. Like,
1: well, one funny thing too is that the uh, there was a TV show about out of England and the the guy who plays Bertie Worcester is um Hugh was it Hugh Laurie? Hugh Laurie, yeah, like the house actor, yeah. which is so funny because he became so famous as the kind of crabby guy from a house, and I was I only watched the show well, a little what, bit, but what, it's so kind of funny because he's totally you know, it's like a dingbat. <laughs> You know, silly person.
0: It's yeah. so funny because what's so funny for all the Brits is that, that he then went on to play house because for all of us, he was just, as you say, the dingbat. Yeah. So the idea that he would be taken seriously as a professional, I mean, I suspect Hugh Laurie had to come to America in order to make that move because I don't think he'd have pulled it off back home. He was so endearingly the, you know, big eared idiot who'd been on TV for so long playing that character. It was kind of an indelible move and it's a real testament to him that he pulled off the house so well well. it probably
1: confirms the british's worst opinions of americans you can like (laughs) you as a
0: serious guy no i don't think so i don't think it went there um so as a kid were books then a place to hide were they a place to escape or was it just that rough year in michigan was it were they always a place of refuge
1: I think, I, yeah, I mean, not all, I don't think all this refuge per se, but I, I guess I like that whole aspect of reading that is, you know, time kind of is much more languorous if mm-hmm. you're reading, and it's, it's like durée, you know, they call it, the 19th mm-hmm. century idea that it's just sort of, you're going through this book, you know, and that might be like a couple of days if it's summer and you don't have nothing else to do, it mm-hmm. might be a week or two, um, and so I think, you know, you the, in the 70s or when I was little, you had more time on your hands if you were a kid, mm-hmm. so... I would read a lot, you know, after school or in the car, and you know, I I, it's also is a distraction. Like, it's you know, we mm-hmm. didn't have iPads or whatever, so sure. it's kind of like fun to be immersed in an exciting story. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a as a general, because of that, I guess as a general practice, it is it's still kind of like my you know my fun time. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was, I think it was then too. Mm-hmm. So I got really into um, stuff like Henry James by the time I was in high school because of that too. Like I love pro like I love kind of I love those really crazy long sentences, mm-hmm. you know, that are that are beautiful, kind of thoughtful, probably like unendurable to some people, but yes. I kinda of found them very like beautiful and almost not spiritual, but kind of not relaxing, but just very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And, and so that that sort of um, yeah, I guess the crafting of the prose is really an art form separate from the plot. Mm-hmm. Like I would say I I agree with that and I mm-hmm. kind of I, I, I read plenty of stuff that isn't like that and it's plot driven, but I, I do actually really like things that are that are artful in the way mm. that they're writing. So
0: Henry James, that was the next, was that the next book that you, in terms of the chronology of, of I the books so. that you picked? Because yeah. your next book, one of the books that you picked was um, Wings of a Dove. Oh yeah. Um, which is published in 1902 and uh, I was <laughs> delighted to see this. I did this podcast, I had my producer interview me for the end of season one and one of my five was Portrait of a Lady. So oh, right. So I'm um, a, a huge James fan and did my thesis on him at Oxford so oh, really? I know well, yeah, oh, and wow. and I'm I'm um, I'm with you. I think those sentences can be um, unendurable, <laughs> and at the same time, are just so magical, so extraordinary. And and I think the late James is all about is sort of let go of plot in a way, and is all about interiority and mm. and rendering somehow on the page the actual experience of what it is to have a thought, I think. Sometimes I think that's where the the sentences get convoluted and move and then you suddenly get to the end and realise that either something has happened or absolutely nothing's happened, (laughs) or that you've moved in time and that where they're processing, you know, the prospect of something, by the end of this long sentence, it has already happened. And I think that's, um, I don't know, I have a theory that that's him wrestling with actually putting consciousness on the page and Mm. this really... Ambitious um, and brilliant way.
1: Well, that's that's like one of my favorite stor- short stories of James, which I didn't really come across till later. this mean, is a big high school college fan that kind of you, know, you read all the books. Right? Well, mm-hmm. i read them again. But is that is a story called "The Jolly Corner"? Yeah. Kind of story. Oh my god. So yeah. that's a, That is. I haven't read that um, for years. Well, it's just so amazing because it is about that consciousness in a way, and it's the idea that the. Person, the character had moved to Europe like James did, and then had moved back to like his family house. I think maybe someone had died or something. And that he's there and he's just sort of haunted, and he doesn't really he thinks that there's a ghost, he doesn't really know what's going on. Like this just keeps having these eerie things happen in his own house. And it turns out that he's being haunted by the him that he would have been had he not left. Hmm. So he's got this double consciousness of Hmm. like him sort of returning um expat and then this the person that wasn't there and it's it's kind of scary like mm-hmm. it's a scary uh ghost for him and it's such an interesting you know, isn't it a
0: great idea of, isn't yeah, it yeah
1: amazing mm-hmm. conceit and also you can kind of see how you know a lot of us have that you know,
0: do you if, have that if it. you go back to the east coast do you feel like is there a version know. of you that stayed behind there well I, yeah I
1: th- well i i get i'm very drawn to parts of the you know, places where I had lived before, like in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or I, I go every summer to Rhode Island to the same place I used to go as a To kid.
0: Block Island. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: love Block Island. so I would say the power of that place and the buildings on it and the you know, I get I'm disappointed when the farm no longer has cows, you know, <laughs> and like, that, like yeah. that kind of stuff. But it, but it isn't I don't think it's just nostalgia. I think it's a kind of a um a, I think it's from because it was a place that I could be very happy and relaxed. Mm-hmm. It kind of is a real return, like when you, you know, when you do those exercises, you know, when you have to kind of like relax your brain, you have to think of like a happy place. Sure. Like that's kind of where that goes. Mm-hmm. So, so, but, but I would say I've also brought a ton with me from stuff that I liked about mm-hmm. like historic architecture in New England mm-hmm. or the way that the '70s dealt with color in the context of old buildings. You know, like a lot of that has come with me and is a big part of my work, which is. I would say not noticeable to someone who's from here because it's gone through so many weird filters, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, so I feel like very, you know, very connected in that way that I, but what I do is kind of very much an extension of, you know, where I come from.
0: Right. What age did you know you wanted to be an architect? 12. Really? Very
1: early. Yeah. I think I was uh, first a pilot. Then I wanted to be a chemist, like sixth and seventh grade. And then I... Switched to architecture by eighth grade. And, and what made that it. choice? I think that it must be that I babysat for so many architects at the time. When oh, I started, really like reading. At 12, you were babysitting? That, you that were tired from babysitting by the time you are 13. Oh, super. My dear like, Lord. then you have a real job after 13. Like, we all had, you know, worked in stores by the time we were 14. But yeah, like, babysitting was like kind of 11, <laughs> like 11, 12, 13.
0: So yeah, you babysat for architects and therefore were in interesting spaces?
1: Yeah, their houses were always like kinda weird. you know, they often have, you know, like I remember half those babies, you know, someone would have like, you know, a super graphic that would say like attic in really big yellow letters on the stairs up to the attic that had been sort of turned into like a modern rep room or something. Uh-huh. Like, that is so cool. Uh uh-huh. someone else had like the slate countertop kitchen that was just you know, nothing my my family know that stuff like that, so right. And then, but then the big thing is I just started reading architecture books a lot, like at night when I was babysitting because, you has know, been like late night on the weekends, kind of. There's That's, like so much fantasy island you can watch. So I got, I, I remember very distinctly some of the architecture books I would read and I just got really interested in it. Like the, they're even more on the weird side, you know, like the, I remember reading The Five Architects, which is this that was one of on on the
0: seventies. Yeah, it was on your list. But um, well, that's that's a later. Oh, five. that's a different one. Later <laughs> five. Tell me about but the, the
1: five f- one. Is is the is the is it's Peter? Oh gosh, if I get it right, but Peter Eisenman, Richard Meyer, Charles Gothney, John Haydock, and Michael Graves are the five. And they are all doing. This is like early seventies. I think Philip Johnson wrote the intro, and they were all young architects and avant-garde architects who are bringing Corbusier back, basically, and uh-huh. they were doing these abstract drawings of these abstract houses that were kind of like white curves, and, you know, some of the Corbusian elements, but sort of put together in almost a more cubits mm-hmm. going away, and very much about the drawings, mm-hmm. not so much about the buildings, mm-hmm. and it wasn't necessarily that I was enamored per se of those buildings, I was just so interested, this is what people were doing, and like, mm-hmm. what's going know what is, this? what's going on here, mm-hmm. and then I had like a big interest in Corbusier for a while, and... Different stuff, and I interned, you know, in high school for some architects.
0: Were you were you um, good at drawing? Were you were you a gifted artist? Was that something that you brought to it? I I think I was more I was probably more
1: in the art like the I like to make stuff. So I would like right. make boats to float in the fountains mm-hmm. at the you know near my mom, grandmother's house. I would I would like assemble things. Mm-hmm. I made like a little farmyard when I was little, and you know, different. I just sort of like to do That almost more like let's say diorama or something, right? Like that. So, right, um, and then I don't know that I, I, I did study art and I did in college, I did do as a painter, it was my thesis project, just like that. But I kind of I wasn't like the person who could, you know, whip out a amazing right. portrait of so, you know the neighborhood, whatever, right? Or something like that. So, right. so it wasn't that I was, I was probably more like a constructor of. Little world to fabricate person.
0: it, right? And, but how extraordinary what happens, then to now that you would sat for architects. I mean, I'm curious what would have happened if you'd sat for chemists, whether you'd have I reverted know. back.
1: Once I, or... I realized that you had to be in a lab all the time, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I don't think this is. I think I, thought, I think I thought it was like alchemy, you know, uh-huh. xander, like make amazing things sizzle. And I was like, oh, I mean, I'm sure it is to some degree for chemists, but it wasn't, it um, didn't seem that. Valid. Yeah, I think I took a chemistry class, but yeah, I, I don't know. i think. I mean, I, I can't imagine what else I would have been really so mm-hmm. I mean other than maybe an academic but I don't I didn't I never like writing you, know, you didn't I was I about
0: write. to ask did you did you you never write? no
1: <laughs> no I don't like I mean I have to a little bit but I'm not a it's not my thing I think in my family I also inherited along with PJ Woodhouse a general fear of uh writing that's oh, really? not a good thing if you're I to perish so over like since literally almost everybody in my Father's side is an academic. Like, some of them would become prolific writers and publish all the time and become wildly successful mm-hmm. superstar academics, and some of them would never actually be able to like finish writing that one book, and mm-hmm. then you that know, was it. it's yeah, it's really dire you know and it yep. causes a lot of anxiety and it's really caused by anxiety so I think I think my, my mom claims that she used to whisper in my ear as a baby like don't become an academic <laughs> so she was
0: probably pretty adamant job done that's so funny I wonder if at some level you misheard it and had become an academic no, no, and she architect still says so. it now. she still, she says still it. does She's like oh, god, oh, god. <laughs> That's so funny. So of the architecture books, which is, is the well, because you had two that I obviously did not know, but I was fascinated to read about. Which one sort of in terms of your chronology is the next one that you landed on? I have Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture by Robert Venturi and Five California Architects by Esther McCoy.
1: Well, I guess I mean I guess Complexity hydrogen I could do that one okay. later because it's a, it, well, so so five California uh, five California architects is this amazing intro to the let don't know if it's a golden age because it still keeps having one, but it was sort of the first golden age of California architecture where it really is this wonderful, writer and journalist who I think interned for Schindler for some reason. I don't really know why, but actually worked in a studio.
0: Yeah. And she
1: would she would maybe a little bit like an Adelouise Huxtable, you know, without as big a platform. Mm-hmm. And she wrote these really caring portraits of these architects and, and their work that I think it was. It must have been something they gave us to read early on in grad school, and they. they I hope they still do mm-hmm. in California. I bet they don't though, because it's like a. You,
0: know. you were you were in grad, You were in grad school here, or the East yeah, Coast? Yeah, I came oh, out okay. to go to grad. School. Oh okay, right.
1: Yeah, I I actually was in England, which is where I was reading Wings of a Dove, and the people there were. This is in the late '80s, and they were like, "If you really want to be an arctic and build stuff, you should just not don't go back to these guys. Ah. Go to California." And I was like, "Really?" And they're like, "Yeah, really. We know this because our friends are, you know, the California arctics." And, um, <laughs> so and sorry, I'm bright. just
0: pause for one second. So what were you doing in England when you read Wings for Dove? Where? How, how come oh, you were oh. there?
1: I was there to go to the AA in um, London, uh-huh. which is in Bedford Square. Okay. And um, I did a year there, my junior year in college, uh-huh. and I did that because. I really, really wanted to be, like, doing some architectural design. They didn't really have that in college. Mm -hmm. They had an art art program that was, like, studio art. So it seemed like a good idea to kind of get in there and
0: do that. Well, I don't want to keep jumping ahead. Let's let's finish talking about the California architects. Have okay. you? But but you have not been. No, you have been back. You've you've not just stayed on the west coast. You have moved. You've I moved east briefly coast into and,
1: the east coast for like a year, but no, in general, right. I've been here for like a long
0: time. <laughs> right, twenty
1: years, 20, 30 years maybe. Um, um,
0: and the and so these five California architects you read that in school here mm-hmm. yeah and
1: I still and I would reread it a lot because I think that the I mean my hero of those architects although they're all wonderful is Schindler, R M Schindler mm-hmm. and there's a story I'm pretty sure it's Esther McCoy who talks about it who um, the story about how Schindler who was it was wasn't penniless but he was sort of like it wasn't fancy, you know. He had this little beautiful house studio that he built with nintra, and he lived there. And, and he would drive around in a station wagon with a bunch of 2x4s in the back, and would kind of like mess around with his stuff that was under construction. So a lot, of, a lot of what's so wonderful about California, about Los Angeles architecture, a lot of the most famous things out here are, you know, single-family houses, and they're mm-hmm. often quite small. They really like these intricate works of art, kind of sculptural jewel box, whatever you want to call it but they, but they, you know, he had this particular idea about space and kind of organized a lot on these diagonals. Um, he had worked for Wright for a long time when he first got here. And anyhow, but so there was a sense of improvisation and once you are actually under construction, you can kind of keep fiddling with stuff and I think that's what, you know, that's what you see in early Gary stuff. That's what Morpheus was doing when I was, when I first moved out, like in the Eighties and nineties, like or Frank Israel, since passed away. Like there was this, there is a kind of a much looser approach and more um, artistic approach, really, to making space and making buildings in the West Coast, and that, and you know, because the East Coast was tended to be, you know, kind of European influence, you know, building for the ages, and where I grew up in Boston, like every new building was covered in brick, like even if mm-hmm. it was just a veneer of fake sure. brick, but it was kind of a rigor conservant conservatism that. That we really,
0: and so he would drive around with the two boys in his car, and he'd just go up to sites that he that he was working on. His own ones, yeah.
1: It would be um, he would. I mean I think he would yeah, I, he would I assumed of, his own way <laughs> yeah he was I, th- I think basically in those days you would often be sort of architect you wouldn't be the builder but you just sort of work in the field with the builder mm-hmm. it. like it wasn't the plans were drawn and everything but it wasn't um, handed over and check in once a week it was mm-hmm. more hands on, which is actually still the case I mean I, a lot we do a lot of residential work too and mm-hmm. you're kind of around a fair amount mm-hmm. and you know suddenly you're like oh god this window is just here and like you kind of look at the drawings but we make it here and not mess with the geometry and if you can you do because you want to just take advantage uh-huh. of, you know, things that show up when suddenly you're, you know, 25 feet up in the air, you start to see things that you wouldn't have necessarily seen
0: before. Do you think that kind of organic responsiveness could happen on the East Coast now, in now that we're in a different time? Or do you think the East Coast just is that much more rarefied and structural and, and rigid and... and-
1: Well, I guess, I mean, there's, you know, I'm not necessarily implying that the psychology of the Holy East Coast is like that, but it's more that those cities were built already, you know, they were kind of done before the 1920s, say, Mm -hmm. or something. And so so, um, there's so much context that it's harder to feel loosey-goosey, you know. And I think the West, because so much of it was built after 1950, literally, Mm -hmm. or even 1960 Mm -hmm. or 70, like still half the city was like empty and you know it's been sort of filled in that there isn't there isn't a whole set of rules to live by you know mm-hmm. sometimes you'll see a track development where stuff looks alike but but often you just sort of these things are kind of like poked into a little hill here or there mm. um, so there's a there's a freedom from context that, yeah. that helps and then I think the clients also are more interested in like a unique form of self-expression yeah. more often than they are with, like, a, a predetermined status, you know,
0: Agreed. kind of yeah, conformity, yeah, you know. yeah. I found that moving here from London. I, w- I was absolutely floored by the architecture here. I mean, to, I mean, I think at the beginning I was snooty about it because I didn't understand it because I understood serried rows of right. Chelsea, Fulham, you know, houses built for the workers who were building the bridges that, you know, have since become sort of $4 million houses. But you know, but that and the and the um, the history of England and of London in particular, just how hodgepodge it is, in this melting pot of a you know 15th century pub next door to a soaring skyscraper. So I was a snoot about LA's architecture when I got here, and, and I remember sort of taking photos of some of the particularly craziness in, in Beverly Hills, where you've got like oh, a yeah. sort of faux disney cottage next to um, I don't know a Spanish villa next the to French tour yeah exactly and then I'm so glad that I've been here long enough to lose that and to just feel kind of delighted at the freedom and the imagination that allows for this and in the same way and, and it's not a dissimilar thing to books like in the same way that you know I've been doing this podcast and people have talked to me have brought about their The graphic novel that meant so much Mm -hmm. to them or the sci-fi or the henry james or the book of poetry or you know whatever it is and in the same way that that all is literature that all counts this all counts as architecture this all counts as uh as an expressiveness and in a way of claiming space and and Putting your own stamp on it in a way that London architecture—it's all I can speak to—doesn't allow for at all. Mm-hmm. You make you make your interiors yours, but you don't mess with the exteriors at all. And that feels—I um, don't know—like a fun. It's been a fun thing to watch. To watch my experience of architecture grow, or my definition of it expand more since being here. I think.
1: Yeah, I think well, the rap on LA for a long time, up until fairly recently, was you know kind of kitschy, you know, disposable everything Mm -hmm. that that was um, and superficial and those kind of things. And and yet, I would say 20th century architecture, like, most of it is in L.A. and most of the progressive stuff of the the late 20th century is from L.A. Mm -hmm. You know, the two American Pritzker Prizers are L.A. or L.A. architects. Um, So it's a kind of, it's part in a way of of that re- Evaluation or redefinition of LA as maybe more of the cultural, you know, slowly the cultural centers is yes. moving to LA. You yeah. know, jumps from New York, from California. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's sort of a you have that 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 shift. Certainly, the art world. You know, you see, like even Kathy Opie did, like a, who, a wonderful photographer did a great series of um, photographs of those kind of houses in Beverly Hills, uh-huh. kind of, and they're, and they're not not in a satirical way. Right, I know, like about their. Expressiveness because they yes. are like portraits. Yes. You know, maybe it was a woman in 1968 who that was her, you know, that, that was, was her friend yes, or whatever. But exactly. that was you know that's one kind of thing. And then, yeah. and then I think also, but what's nice is that yeah you might have all these sort of more typological style things that are kind of not necessarily in architectural the a capital A mm-hmm. land. But yeah, you might also have a fair amount of that mixed in and it. In a way, it makes space for you know avant-garde ideas. Yeah. And, I think a more democratic and sort of inclusive, you know, sense of a of a of place. Like,
0: I agree. Less conformist. I totally agree. I think that was what I came to. Um, I think that's what I came to sort of appreciate after it took took some time, but it also took some time. I think to sort of get to know the different enclaves of L.A. and see mm-hmm. to realize this collection of villages that this huge city is, and it was something that took a little while to land on. I think coming having been born and raised in London. That I, I think I kept looking for the city. I kept looking for um, Soho or mm-hmm. um, I don't know Hyde Park. I kept looking for a centre that I could that would hold me in mm-hmm. some sense. And I think, and I lived in West Hollywood at the time for years before I moved up into Laurel Canyon. And I think when I when I moved up into the hills, I I had this realisation of like, oh, you can't look to LA to give you an urban experience in the way that London offers it you have to play to its strengths. And, and what L.A. does extraordinarily is offer you this canyon life, I think, that mm-hmm. that the hill life of these winding little streets and these completely discursive cul-de-sacs that end in nothing and these hidden cabins and this leafy withdrawal that then... But then seconds later you're emptied out into the Chateau Marmont and or the valley or, you know, whatever it right. is. That the, the hills and the beach... I mean, this is just my preference, but I feel like those those two extremes are what LA does so beautifully, and that if you surrender searching for your New York or your London pavement walking, pounding experience, I guess downtown these days that's you can you can find that. But that had been um, it's my advice to young actors when they land here is hit the hills or hit the beach, but stop oh, looking yeah. for London.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I think that's what, and I mean, I think of like say. Rustic Canyon, which Mm -hmm. has these beautiful modern wood tree houses by Ray Cappy or something, or Palm Springs, with like sort of Neutra houses and that whole language of, I mean, you have very distinct. Enclaves, as you say, like within you know, within the within the city. I mean, it's actually pretty hard to see much of LA in a short time, right? Yes, it takes a long time. I, my new favorite thing is Pico Ballpark. Oh, really? Because <laughs> I'm missing the LA, I'm missing like Rebo Man LA because like downtown <laughs> used to be sort of so, you know, like, where happened used, I, I used to work with a theater down there a long time ago.
0: Which like, theater? 80s.
1: It was, um the Wallenboyd theater okay. and the Actors Gang.
0: Okay, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so we would have rehearsals down there. I mean, I wasn't doing the theater. I was like, I don't want to help her. But, but we, you know, there's like one rest of Gorky's was open late at night. It was, just, it was just this funny, like, you know, like Berlin, basically. And then you have, but people would live all over the place. And these other, you know, you go meet in West Hollywood at a bar or something. You'd go. But what I miss is that um, I always liked the Again, I just I think of it as hyper democratic, like the little entrepreneurship sort of mom and pop, you're know, like, Oh suddenly there's like three Russian grocery stores, and uh-huh. there's a mail salon. Isn't it? Like, you know, this different ethnic not even enclave, it's sort of like the valley Yes, the valley does, I think. Yeah. But I just like so so sometimes I'll drive I have a bunch of work sometimes in Santa Monica and I'll just take Pico back because it's just uh-huh. makes me really happy like I go buy Roscoe's Chicken and Waffle and the weird Swedish <laughs> shop and then the you know that's a couple true. other things like, and, and that like some of the houses are kind of pink and white and green and just, you know it's almost like it's not nathaniel West because that's such a dystopia but that kind of sense of you know small Nice homes in this interesting city. Yeah, yes, that's
0: kind of what I feel like I, I no, Pico it's true it has a, a it still about. has a fifties sort of hominess domesticity to it. I know what you mean. That's funny, and Magnolia. That's a that's a boulevard you like if you're in well, the north. I yeah, I think it's a, <laughs> I got to make that
1: more of a movie, but it goes on forever. Okay. Magnolia. But there's I I was teaching for a while at, at Woodbury University, and sometimes I'd have to go to like a job in Laurel Canyon. And then you go like weirdly just across some big avenue in the valley, like mm-hmm. together. You know, There's no highway way together. You have to kind of like. Doo, 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 doo. And some of those are amazing. There's like a cowboy and western store of something, and there's you know, just the strangest restaurants. Yes. Right? And I, I just like that kind of.
0: Stuff. Yeah. No, I it's agree. Really I, there's something about the specificity of it too. Like you say, like the cowboy and western. I think I had that when I lived in um, West Hollywood for a while too. That was these little Russian stores and I don't speak any Russian my mum does weirdly is fluent in it and so I would ring home and ask mum to translate if I just needed a lemon like <laughs> how do I ask for a lemon I mean you'd think they'd be visible but there was something so dear and that felt very foreign because in England people learn English very very quickly yeah. and here you can maintain your yes, language right? and your yeah you really can your and, life completely and, you and, and somehow travel. get away with it yeah so the next book, which would be, would be Complexity and Contradiction or Big Sleep?
1: Oh, well, I guess Big Sleep in terms of L.A. stuff. So, so I mean, that one, I, I just wanted to pick out something that was sort of a noir and that's such a great classic. And then this morning I read this crazy article about Big Sleep, like a more academic one, which had to do, well, I'll, I'll get that. but But the Big Sleep, There's, a, there's a, the, the, it's hard to separate for me. to you have know, the film from the uh-huh. I like When a, from did you, do
0: film. you remember when you read the book? I read a lot of noir,
1: like, or, or hardwell fiction in college, I guess, uh-huh. and I probably, and I watched a lot of noir films, so it was probably kind of tight. I think I liked, that was one of the things I liked about California before I came here was the whole noir, you know, uh-huh. world um, of, yeah, detective stories and kind of bootleggers and, you know, the the, what is the, um, what's the classic movie, Chinatown, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and i still love that and i still it's interesting cuz it's it's definitely changed like my sense of that because that's a little bit of like a reductivist like outsider view you know? but i think what's so great about noir stories is that they really also added a lot of depth i think to people's perception of california because again if if, if everyone thinks of it as sunshine and superficial bikini stuff and you know that everyone's just an airhead or something versus noir is like is you know dark gritty matricide or you know like mm-hmm. all kinds just mm-hmm. you know wars over money and, mm-hmm. and kind of corruption and 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 what happens in those novels and in The Big Sleep too? is like the the the, you know, the little protagonist kind of drives around this big city or collection of towns, and you know they're in this super sunshiny street, but like inside there's like a dead body. You know, like it's mm-hmm. this darkness of the lightness of suburbia. Sure. So it ha- it's almost you know, whereas there's that other version of noir, I guess it's kind of like urban and like New York downtown, mm-hmm. and like tenements and stuff. The, the California one is really uses that counterpoint Light dark, the lightness and yeah, the sure. dark, and I, I really love that as a even a cultural technique, you know, for mm-hmm. an architect to use, And mm-hmm. you kind of use these, these um, contrasts in terms of how you design. And also, it, add, it does add a lot of depth to one's perception of, like, even... You, well, as an architect, how people might perceive something because mm. someone might be designing something to be blah blah blah, but someone else might see it as like terrifying for right. such and such a reason, and that right. and that and you can't control that, but you can. I think the more aware you are of multiple readings is is, is a really important skill to have. Yeah, want To sure. have like successful, especially for public spaces, that you're not. And, you know, sometimes you're just something completely clueless. And you're like, oh my god, like every person is going to talk about this is that <laughs> uh, um, but, but, but really more I think in a profound like even like the whole Manson murder which you know some of them happen around here like it's just sort of like there's always this underlying like no matter how many palm trees or you know 80 degree days it's full of humans and there's all these other you know there's all kinds of undercurrents there and it, it kind of helps us keep in touch with our humanity
0: I think, yeah you know? that's really interesting i listened to your um th- that fantastic ted talk you gave i really enjoyed it and um, it's a tedx talk that you can find on youtube and uh, you talked about that about the correlation or the relationship between sunshine and smog and that this was such an important part oh, yes, of your smog. yeah and and um I was really I was struck by it and then I hadn't got your list yet and then as soon as I saw The Big Sleep I felt like, oh, that, that's closed the circle for me. That made complete sense that this would be something you were, you were drawn to. When did you last reread it? Do you know? I
1: think I read it like maybe four years ago. Uh-huh. But but what I, So so the interesting thing about it and it's sort of along the same lines is, I mean, the thing that I was reading about today is that, that um, I guess there was a famous sort of Tony Morrison essay about how you know, African Americans have were kind of written out of a lot of American fiction that's mm-hmm. written by white writers, but also that that their presence and the presence of slavery kind of like undermines this idea of you know American fabulous supremacy. Land yeah, or whatever. yeah and super- Which is that like we're so equal and democratic? And I remember, I remember I was slave people, and then and so the the academic who was writing this piece about about um, Chandler that I was reading, and I think about the Big Sleep, was talking about the family in the big sleep, is actually a, they're descended from the kind of Mexican aristocrats that were originally like running California. And there's a whole reverse kind of thing that happened. The academic accuses mm-hmm. Chandler of, of being an operative in this, who I think Chandler was kind of a racist um, Anglophile. And... That that he would inevitably make characters of color or like Hispanic descent kind of you know corrupt or kind mm-hmm. of morally Suspect degenerate, or right? And that this whole family that is, seems to be like a rich you know pillar of society mm-hmm. family it turns out like every single one of the two daughters who are supposed to be damsels in distress are actually like horrible and like one's murdering people and like, you know the, 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 but they're but then and they have but there's these clues that they are actually like. You know, mestizo Americans because no, they interesting. Had traditionally, I guess, yeah, you know, the landed, sorry, that the people who were their kind of rulers of California, who were of Spanish and Mexican descent, often would sort of intermarry the Anglos after the after the Mexican War in order to kind of keep their property there. Mm-hmm. And like they would essentially be providing the money. They're like the dowry people right. to the whites who are keeping the bloodline. Local. Right. Yeah. So the interesting is that instead of instead of writing out like the African- American slave the job of, of this kind of racism in fiction is to kind of have an excuse for why they are no longer you know why why the Anglos or the whites run California like right. that these people it's kind of like when people wrote about the decadence of Rome uh-huh. that it, you know they have all kinds of ridiculous Theories excuses about, about sexuality and right. America, these are the reasons that it fell apart they like well these you know because of their their inherent in decadence. They're, wow! They no longer the true the true owners of it. That's so
0: interesting. I had no idea until I was researching this because I read The Big Sleep. I when I moved here 18 years ago, I decided to read only California novels for a year oh. and just try and sort of immerse a bit. Well, I just felt so English. I felt so irreducibly. English when I arrived and and felt all this dissonance of, of we all speak the same language and yet I feel so foreign I've never felt I've never felt so alien and I remember saying to my mum at one point it would be easier if everyone spoke German because because then I would expect there to be um, I would expect us to be foreign you know yeah. but because we all speak English there's an assumption of parity and of shared humour and of shared history and shared cultural references and still eighteen years later i am still unpacking that stuff i am still like oh wow no i don't get what it is to have been i mean uh, who does but i don't get what it is the african-american situation here is just not what we have at home and you know i come from a colonial country with its own host of problems but we didn't have slavery and that's just not something i i that I'm still learning about I'm still educating myself anyway this is a long way off track but Chandler was someone that I read as soon as I got here and I remember just just sort of falling in love with the world of it and the writing of it and hungry for what felt like the romance of it and the possibility of it I mean even with the darkness it just felt like every corner Philip Marlowe drove down there was a murder happening and there was a glamorous woman in an evening dress and I right. felt I felt like I would open my door and sort of Wander down to my Russian supermarket, and wait for something to happen that felt like that felt like it belonged in the Big Sleep or any of his novels, but it never did. It never really. Was well, lucky in terms of the
1: murder. Part. Yeah, I'm glad the murdering part <laughs> didn't happen.
0: Um, there was a little quote that I found that I thought was so wonderful, and it was interesting because it. It was just this interesting it, it, it struck me because of what you were talking about the light and dark and mm-hmm. what he does with language that is um i think overlooked because we're so caught up in the plot but i think raymond chandler is really a master of detail Didn't and he go to oxford too atmosphere i don't know if he went to he oxford did. he went to dulwich interestingly oh, okay. which is where uh, woodhouse went they went oh, to the same okay. school and i did not know that he was english and more that you know he was born nobody in America. does
1: i mean that's what's so interesting That was like, amazing he's he's, he's- just
0: predates you, but yeah, a bit to do. Um, anyway, I'll just read you this bit. Um, he describes a room as being too big, the ceiling was too high, the doors were too tall, and the white carpet that went from wall to wall looked like a fresh fall of snow at Lake Arrowhead. There were full length mirrors and crystal doodads all over the place. The ivory furniture had chromium on it, and the enormous ivory drapes lay tumbled on the white carpet a yard from the windows. The white made the ivory look dirty, and the ivory made the white look bled out. The windows stared towards the darkening foothills. It was going to rain soon. There was pressure in the air already. And I just oh love that, God. isn't it Wow. For the white and the dark and the and the sense of, of just ominousness and the foreboding and just in one paragraph and all he's done is describe some furniture and some curtains in a room. And I, I was like, that's that's a master right there. And we can get distracted by Bogie and Bacall being so sort of mesmerizing in their own performances and what a great movie that was and what a love letter to L.A. that was. And yet, that that just that paragraph alone for me is like, there's why he belongs in the in the list of, you know, best books and things. It was really something. Well, that, that makes
1: me think of that, just the issue of atmosphere, which is kind of what I always try and... Tell well, I try to convince the people that work for me here that like this. We really are designing atmospheres because in the end, that's kind of like how people perceive space. I mean, maybe not when it gets to like public space or bigger buildings, but but even then, you really want to. It's it's a little bit you know there's a little bit of production design involved, Mm -hmm. and there's really though a sense of this thing, whatever the school or something you know might feel this way, whereas Mm -hmm. you know this house over here might feel this way, and this might over here you know that that that. That sort of acute descriptiveness of that is so wonderful because it does it kind of shows how much atmosphere matter, you know, yes. that, that it really can enhance or detract from, you know, whatever the other intention is. It's sort of the opposite of minimalism, right? You know, like I'm I'm, no, I'm perfectly happy with minimalism in many things, but I, I don't necessarily. I think I think I think these days as architects we have to work harder to make people feel like they are in some space, you know, because there's so much crappy junk space around mm-hmm. that you have to kind of, you have to do a little more like to create an atmosphere, frankly. So, that, you know, just as a counterpoint to say, Instagram, <laughs> Trust yeah, him, like, it's so interesting. you interesting. not want to make a really immersive environment. And you think know, that's
0: harder that's, to do these days? No, well, I
1: think you have to do it now. I think that for a long time, you know, minimalism has been the kind of main form that most serious architecture takes mm-hmm. but I think that that is actually changing quite a lot and, and, and maybe partially the digital thing or maybe just an awareness of all the tools that we have at our at our hands mm-hmm. as architects whether it's color or material that, that why not use them like why why follow the white mm-hmm. on white on white on white role mm-hmm. and you know
0: But it's such a hallmark of your buildings are these these beautiful, um, they're like patches of sunlight, the colour that you use. I love the, there always seems to be, I mean not always, but from what I've seen, there's always a patch of yellow that so sort of sucks you in, or the lovely yellow tiles that you use, and I am all about colour when... You know, judiciously used. I think it's gorgeous. I think it's. Were you always uh, a colorist, <laughs> for lack of a better no, word? I don't, well, is that I mean, no. I think, I think of moving here. Do you think? I think. Well, I think it's a. Um,
1: I think it's about you know developing you know a vocabulary. I think color and even pattern is is a lot cheaper as a technique for making architecture than oh. um, you know materiality. Mm-hmm. Like you can sort of you can just go like I'm going to make a giant you know cast terracotta something something like sure. that. It's gonna cost a million dollars where is you gotta paint something
0: uh-huh.
1: terracotta. So it's a it's a it's a inexpensive way of doing stuff, but it's also it is I think it also does go back to like kind of having an interest in like painting and um, different kinds of palettes even really sort of signify different things mm-hmm. in the world, of like abstract expressionism, say, versus Paul Clay or mm-hmm. or um, Mirameco fabrics, or something like that. Like mm-hmm. I like a lot of those different kinds of things that are, are more slightly exaggerated,
0: mm-hmm. um, high contrast which color and pattern. Makes me think of that with your last book, um, Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture oh, yeah. by Robert Venturi, who uh, who the only quote I knew about him was "less is a bore," which oh, was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I loved. I really loved. Tell me when you came to that book, or why, or what made it formative, or what makes it formative.
1: Well, it's one of those books with whom a lot of great people of, of my generation would have a kind of a love-hate relationship. I mm-hmm. think because, in a sense, I, I started when I was very young. Postmodern modernism was still at its kind of um, zenith, and that was stuff like you know the, the literal kind of taking of classical motifs and sticking them on buildings, like. The Portlandia building in Portland is kind of famous, and I, I think I think I've never actually talked to the writers, but like I think that the name of that show being named Portlandia has to do with that.
0: Oh, uh, really? It's
1: like a ridiculous building <laughs> in Portland. Everybody it has like very little windows. It has this funny shape, but it's you know it's, it was an epitome at the time of postmodernism, and so I hated that. I just absolutely I, I didn't mind like weird you neo-expressionist know, stuff out of Japan, but I didn't like this whole kind of cut and paste you neoclassical know, thing. So. Then when I was in school, a lot of people, we, all, a lot of us, eventually gravitated. Let's say I'm the same era of like, you know, grunge rock and early hip hop. In terms mm-hmm. of when I was Arctic, so I became an Arctic neo modernism. Sort of became the the Derivgor mm-hmm. style, and that is um, or language, and that is a fairly minimalist language, and mm-hmm. things are more um, stripped down mm-hmm. and maybe a little on the boring side mm-hmm. to be honest so so I think when I started working I was I would I would kind of do stuff more like I would deconstruct stuff a little bit like I think one of my first houses had these panels on the side of with windows there would be like a sort of a window over what was essentially the wall with the insulation in it as well as like the window above it so there's a sort of idea of like you know like this, those, those agricultural colleges will kind of like a circle on a cow and have a window in the cow and see how they digest or something right. Some sort of teaching tool but it was kind of like that like uh-huh. digesting cow approach to architectural construction <laughs> 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 and I thought that was you know this was sort of interesting but like a little more like clinical sure and and then yeah and then I, I really changed over time and I think part partially it was parent you know motherhood and having these kids who were like into like all kinds of wild outfits and colors <laughs> and you know, trying to go with it and have fun with it. And I started doing i had like this house I had this giant pink wall in it and, and then I thought that
0: the house is that of is that you house? It. Is that, that did? no, not yes. the one that you built for yourself.
1: Yeah, the one I did for myself I uh-huh. think yeah and the girls like that's in the book I guess. And then I kinda of started to go down that path and and the book was in a way taking that idea and, like, looking back at 20th century L.A. architecture, looking for that precedent, because it Mm -hmm. was, you know, it's very exuberant, like, the Schindler houses are kind of crazy, like, Frank Lloyd Wright's doing, like, bananas, you know, pink curvy houses, round windows, and then Albert Frey, like, all these different people, so I I was really loving the fact that actually modern history is not hygienic and antiseptic and kind of, you know everything must be more minimal like Mises would have done. Sure. And instead it's actually this kind of wild bunch of imaginations and forms. And I, and I loved like the Gary that early Gary. Like so there's just, it seems to me there was more of this continuum and that I needed to bring to pu- the public the fact that actually right. modernism is like this. It doesn't yes. it's not that. It is like there is a more as more modernism. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I've kind of just were you know, I have worked on that in a proselytizing way per se, but I, I do feel that way that, mm-hmm. that that it's you know architecture can be you know quite it's really fun to to do and if you make a good space people really want to be there so Mm -hmm. that and then that again as as in the the same time frame as like as this digital realm has really I really feel like it is a not a fight to the death but there's you really are fighting for attention yes there's just it's hard to compete with like constant you know ads and programs and notes from your friends and snap you know all these things on your phone. So, and I, I guess I do enough retail and restaurants. Like I, I know that if I make it really a place people want to be, then mm-hmm. it, it helps them like meet other people. You yeah, they talk to the person next to them. They might still be like writing their screenplay on their computer, but then they might end up having these different relationships, and it it becomes like hospitable for human interaction. It's a, but it's a
0: it's no. A, it's I a, would it's say an it's important
1: smart. one because it, it's again, but you have to use different. I say know. it's
0: setting the bar so high, I think, and I think it's something you. You do so beautifully. I mean, the Intelligentsia coffee shop in Silver Lake, to listeners who come to L.A., go, go to it, because it is not only a wonderful cup of coffee, but it is an invitation to stop for a moment. It really is. There is so much space in there. I remember being bewildered when I first walked in and thinking, why is there so much space? Why am I not being herded? Why am I not being confronted by, you know, the conventional bar at which I must sit, but I can walk all around this space I can interact with these baristas anywhere I can interact with the other people I mean as a result I think intelligentsia probably resents you because people just sit there and write and hang out all day long I I say resent with a with a smile obviously but I think it's something you you do and I think it's an amazing thing to take so seriously as a sort of civic responsibility is to encourage people to to, to look up, just to look up and look out at the space that they're in and I, I think your spaces do that, they really do. Yeah, thank you that yeah. it's a lot. That. Yeah, that's cool. It's really something. Um, I have some follow up questions, can I yeah, ambush please. you with some of them? What um, What almost made the list but didn't
1: Oh, God. Oh, I have a long list. Well, <laughs> there was... Um, so I, I read this book that really affected me a lot, like, a couple, like maybe three or four years ago, and it kind of predated like the the way that Trump really, I think, woke up a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's like the kind of larger history of, of institutional racism and sexism and stuff. Um, and it's this wonderful book. <laughs> it's, God damn, it's, called, it's something like the... The incident at Gaineyville. It's by a, a African American historian slash writer in Oregon, Daniel. Oh gosh, I'm gonna nine but what it what it is is about it's a it's a he's got a kind of a character, probably like himself as like an academic who goes back to see his father who's dying in like this tiny town in Georgia, but it's kind of you know like the UN guy was just going around America looking at poverty, and he's like in rural Georgia, and there's places where it was kind of like sewers, kind of like on the surfaces, and it was basically like one of those places. Mm-hmm. Um, but over like somehow the the book kind of unfolds into like a pretty searing history of that his father's father, and who had been sort of a bootlegger, but also had been a, had been an emancipated slave, and just a very very thorough intense portrait not just of those characters but then really like all these pretty complex political Mm -hmm. things around it and history like you know 19th century american history and Mm -hmm. and 20th century and and i just found it really deeply moving because it was you know the the writing i thought was good and the the way that it kind of also I was just learning so much, you know, sort of fact-based stuff. In mm. addition, but it wasn't, it wasn't even like historic fiction. Anyhow, so that that I thought was a good one because I, I feel like there are so many interesting um, books out now, like the Tana E. or that. But but like that, but that as a fiction reader, <laughs> i like yeah. I'd rather go that way where I get like a lot, you know, for yeah you know, that that, that kind of also has like a story, because in, in a way also. It helps me like remember all the facts I agree. more, you know. Because I, I, I that they're sort of tied together it's a to this good retainment meta, yummy yeah, me too. Yeah. So that was a big one. And then and the other oh, one I done. guess was Jane Garden, who I've just like read everything of hers lately. Oh,
0: which one?
1: Well, I started with the old filth. Uh huh. But I guess I don't know that I would have said that the books, you know, shape me per se. But it's right. more that I I was happy to find like a more recent writer that was also writing that kind of you know, that was writing about a period that, that um well I guess I felt like she was sort of a Henry Jamesy person uh-huh. you know of today. Like, right. Is, they're kind of profound psychological things. Yeah you deal a bit with the sort of class issues that are part of that, although it's not like the right. main topic.
0: Right. What's the book you lie about having read? Oh Moby Dick.
1: You know, I <laughs> probably love Moby Dick, except I never <laughs> can finish it. So I love like the begin I've read the first chapter like a thousand times, uh-huh. you know? but I'm like oh <gasps> Bit. I don't know why I haven't read. I mean, I, yeah, it makes no sense. To me. I, I've read like all of Trollope. It's is, a... like way slower. Than <laughs> Somehow, I'm not. Really, I think it's the timing issue. Oh, Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I love seafaring
0: stories. I, really, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. I think I've started it too. I think honestly, for me, it's it's. Um, and I'm not usually bothered by this. It just feels incredibly male. I, I think oh, part of me feels that's... very, very outside it in that way. Like yeah. I can relate to having something I want passionately, but there's something. I gendered about it, but I can't quite get past. I think. Um, do you have a favorite movie or TV adaptation of a book?
1: Hmm. Maybe it's big. I sense. guess a TV one that I really like, and I was trying to get my husband to watch it. And I think that was is the um, Armistead Maupin oh, Tales of the City. Yeah, Lenny.
0: Yeah, oh my gosh, I never I saw that. it. Oh, it's so good. I read the books, but I never saw it. It's like it's kind of it's not like as
1: high a production value as what you expect these days, but the actors are all. Like I think it's uh, Olympia Dukakis, oh, and Laura wow, Linney, and I just love Laura and it's just such a great story about again a California story, sure. San Francisco in the seventies, yeah. and there's just kind of like everybody. I think I think that they were written. Yeah. I think I watched him and wrote in a kind of Dickensian way where he just like dash off another uh-huh. chapter for the newspaper. I every
0: think week. that's right. I think so it's kind of, yeah. it just
1: like anything could happen, uh-huh. But it's it's not necessarily like I think I would always like the. Film version better probably than mm-hmm. if I was actually reading on the page because I don't really know how the prose quality is, uh-huh. yet, but maybe it's fabulous. But it's it's a wonderful story because it's, it's also like in a way a lot of us think of. I mean, oh, I when I think San Francisco seventies, I think like you know crazy serial killers sure. and horrible politics mm-hmm. and you know murdering the mayor and all this stuff. Right. And, and um, it's a kind of a it's more like sexual awakening and like the like one of the lead characters is transgender. Mm-hmm that you don't know, really, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, you could almost say, like sets the path or stuff like transparent
0: right like sure and a little community that's what I remember about it yes yeah, I, I live in this boarding house which yeah, is like my exactly. ideal for you know, retirement
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't I'd be like a bunch of people, my friends all live in the same I
0: agree I think we talk about the same we talk about this all the time that we need a compound for where yeah, we well, the compound's totally. the way to go thank you so much for doing this this was such a pleasure thank, thank you for you being my so guest much. this is super fun Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference. Rate us, give us some stars, let your friends know, let your family know. Tell everyone you can. Go to the website bookishwithsoniawolga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about. We list there not only the five favorites, but every single book that is referenced. You can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny, tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website. So if you are interested, please go ahead and click on that. You can find us on Facebook, we have a Bookish with Sonia Walger page. You can find us on Twitter with at Bookish Sonia or at soniawalger.com. And you could also email me through the info at page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. So if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from, or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show.